and welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 99, recorded on March 31st, 2019. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. Good to be connected with you on Lucky 99. And we start out with some new software from Mozilla. Yeah, Firefox Lockbox has come to Android, and that allows you to sync your passwords over from the desktop. And I've tried it out, and it works pretty well. This is another one of those um, was a test pilot, and then they launched it on iOS. On iOS, they recently updated it to be more iPad-friendly, as they say, and now we have it on Android. So I guess the value proposition here is if you've already invested in saving all of your passwords in Firefox, this now abstracts them out, essentially, from Firefox. So it, it utilizes that same password database, synchronizes it to the lockbox, you log in with your Mozilla account, and Bob's your uncle, there's all your passwords from Firefox. And on these mobile platforms, you can opt to also turn on autofill, so it will autofill apps and other websites from other browsers. Yeah, I tried out that autofill feature, and that worked absolutely perfectly. I was very impressed with this, generally, I must say. Yeah, much like LastPass and other password managers that are out there, although Lockbox is a little simpler than a lot of what's out there, and that might actually be kind of appealing because it's it's not like too much. But for me, it's definitely not enough. And they're pitching this at complete newbies to password management. Like in their blog post, they write, say goodbye to the password cheat sheet. Store it as a note or a contact in your phone or maybe written on a sticky note on your desk. Like you're, <laughs> you're no longer doing the under the keyboard thing. That's who they're pitching this at. Oh, yeah, definitely. But I think one reason to switch to it from LastPass is the fact that it is open source. Unfortunately, it's not on F-Droid yet. So you do need the Play Store to install it. But I'd rather use something that I know is open source and comes from a trusted organization like Mozilla than LastPass, which they've had some breaches in the past. And I don't know, I just don't trust them somehow, whereas I'm very tempted to start using this. Yeah, I really can't disagree with any of that. And I would say if you haven't been using a password manager, this might be a decent place to start, especially if you're a heavy Firefox user. For me, I've... I've been using LastPass now for so long that I disable the built-in Firefox password manager. And so <laughs> I have like a total of five passwords saved in my Firefox password database, and everything else is in LastPass. So this service has not a lot of intrinsic value to me because I've already been using LastPass for so long. And there's a lot of other good alternatives out there as well, like KeePass and many others that people could tell us about at linuxactionnews.com slash contact, that I really feel like this is aimed at the new-to-password management market that are heavily invested in Firefox, which is a pretty narrow niche. But going back to your point, I do really like that this is open source. Yeah, and I think this is something that Mozilla should be spending money on. Some of the stuff they've done before is a bit questionable, but I think this is very useful, and the tight integration with Firefox means that it is actually really useful for people. And it, it means that you can use Firefox on the desktop. You don't necessarily even have to use Firefox on Android to take advantage of this because most people use apps for everything. So it seems like the kind of thing I want to see them doing. So let's talk about something Google is doing that I'm not yet sure how I feel about this. They're bringing AMP to email. Of course, starting with Gmail. Of course, with Gmail. So AMP accelerated mobile pages, which was originally a way to make websites that were really stripped down and worked really quickly on mobile. But the features have crept in and crept in, and now they're putting this into email. It was announced about a year ago, and it's taken this long to be fully rolled out. 
and it's just something that I'm not interested in at all. I don't even like HTML emails, really. Never mind rich features like carousels and being able to vote in polls and interact with emails. I want emails to be just a plain text document, really. Just I want just some facts in that email and maybe some links that I can then click through. But the whole point of it is to make it simpler, make it so that you don't have to click through. So I think some people will like it, but for me, it just seems like email's fine. Don't mess with it. Google pitches this as turning email into a surface to get things done, which is pretty broad. Uh, Another way to say is it's a way to turn emails more into apps without using a ton of JavaScript. So this is a reduced version of the AMP spec specifically for email. We'll have a link in the show notes if you want more information. And there are a considerable amount of security considerations that have been put into this. So let's talk about what Google's trying to do here. The way Google frames this is that there is a movement for interactive emails that is being driven by large corporations that want to have more engaging emails. And there's all these different competing ideas. And so this is their suggestion. And from a high level, the advantages it offers is real-time content in emails, like you could have flight information that's updated in real-timer news stories or weather that is updated real-time in an email thread. You could bring in other components. Google has partners they've brought on like Pinterest and others that will have dynamic content that updates in the email. It sounds like a nightmare to me personally. However, Google's version of future is this is coming whether you want it or not. That is a reasonable argument, I suppose, that if it's going to happen, then at least make it an open standard and have it all be open source and everything. But I'd rather that they just said, no, we're not going to stand for this. Gmail is one of the biggest, if not the biggest, email platforms in the world. And they could just say, we're going to block all of this HTML and JavaScript stuff rather than encouraging it like this. But I suppose then ultimately people may start switching away, and that's probably what they're worried about. One of the things that I admittedly thought this would be for would be so that way Google could guarantee a way to deliver rich ads in email. Because Right? I mean, it seems like one of the things you would want a more interactive email experience to have is advertising. But when you look at the AMP for email spec, they specifically removed the advertising portion of the AMP spec. It's not allowed in AMP for email. And on top of that, if you want to send one of these emails to a Gmail user, you have to go ask permission from Google directly. And they have a whole series of verifications you have to go through and steps you have to take to send AMP emails to Gmail users. How long is it going to be before adverts slip into this, though? Because originally AMP didn't have any adverts, and then eventually they added that feature. And they've made a bit of a song and dance about the fact that this doesn't have adverts in it, but it's surely a matter of time. I should think so. And AMP still has the original issues that we have with AMP, and that is that it is controlled primarily by Google. I admit they set up that new council, but that council is still pretty much controlled by Google. And I... I'm not comfortable with this very heavy-handed using the leverage of Gmail, and they've partnered up with Outlook.com and Mail.ru to also support AMP emails. So they're using this very large market lever to really essentially force a standard onto everybody. And email used to be the one last remaining decentralized standard and protocol we have. Anybody could set up SMTP and IMAP and POP3 or whatever the hell they want and have their own mail server. I don't recommend it, but anybody could do it. 
But now we're beginning to see a shift where at least a portion, the content of an email, is going to be centrally controlled by one corporation. Well, not necessarily, because they're not changing the way email works. They're adding to it. And so this will be optional. And you can still send plain text emails to each other without this. And I don't think they're ever going to stop that happening. And maybe you'll just get a link to the content or whatever if your client doesn't support it. So I think people will be able to just block this. Yeah, they're going to have to have a fallback mode. You're right. Because a lot of people just have plain text turned on on their mail client. And so there will have to be some sort of fallback system. And I I think what I'm getting at is Google's going to have a – they could, if this takes off, have a – a very critical part of what becomes modern email. They could really kind of own that. And maybe you could argue they already do with Gmail, but I don't know. This just, just this just feels different. If you could just hit the reset button and do AMP over again, it almost makes more sense in this context, especially in its more restricted mode. You could kind of see, like, start here. Start with AMP for email and then over time grow it to the web. Because I think undoubtedly part of it is my biases I have about AMP for the web and how that's been bad for publishers like ourselves has influenced how I view AMP for email. What it actually seems like it could be, especially when you watch some of Google's videos, a a pretty usable product or at least one that you could see a lot of companies would want to (laughs) use. I don't know if I want it, but when you see their product demonstrations, it's clear there's going to be market demand for something like this. Well, I think you've almost hit the nail on the head there in that it's solving a problem that doesn't exist. It's companies wanting to solve this problem. Yes. And it will appeal to them, but I don't think it's necessarily going to appeal to consumers because it's certainly not appealing to either of us. I already hate my email. I don't want it doing more things. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, I don't need the weather updated in my email. And I realized that was just a really cute example they had. But uh, I, I'm, I'm perfectly okay with just getting a link to go get the most relevant information, and uh, I'm good with that. And I'd like to keep email as clean and simple as possible. It, then it's easier to encrypt. It's, it's easier. It's more standards compliant. Um, but uh, I doubt I'm going to get my wish on that one, Joe. Yeah. All right. Well, things have been happening in Ubuntu land this week. Yeah, I have gotten my wish on one thing, and that is performance improvements and stability improvements to the GNOME shell stack. And these are very apparent in the new Ubuntu 19.04. We wanted to give a quick rundown of a couple of these because there's some big progress that's going to be trickling down to a lot of the new distribution releases starting right here. Gnome Shell 3.32. It's going to be shipping with Linux kernel 5.0 and a bunch of other new things. I've been running it um, for two months now, I think. Month and a half at least. And it's the fastest, most reliable Gnome experience I've ever had. And now they've reached this beta milestone, beta one. It's really looking ready to ship, isn't it? Yeah, we don't normally talk about betas on this show. But with Linux 5.0 in there and the new release of GNOME Shell, I think this is this is going to be a milestone release, like I said, of all of the distributions of this next generation this, of 2019. But it's not just the main version of Ubuntu, of course. All the other flavors have released their beta one of 19.04. But Ubuntu Mate has released a beta of 18.04 for the Raspberry Pi. And I've been checking this out, and it's pretty solid. It's got hardware-accelerated VLC, a proper Ubuntu kernel, so it's not sharing the Raspbian kernel like it used to. And that old 16.04 image was pretty neglected at this point. It didn't really work properly. Firefox wouldn't open and stuff. It was just broken. So it is good to see that that project hasn't been abandoned. And it's great to see that we've got 
a good competitor to Raspberry, which now is very mature and a really solid OS for the Raspberry Pi. But competition is always good and choice is always good. So I would say if you've got a Pi, definitely check it out. We'll have a link to it in the show notes, um, linuxactionnews.com slash 99, and stick it on your Raspberry Pi and see what you think. Yeah, I'd love to hear people's take on it. Uh, also, FFmpeg got hardware-assisted video decoding and encoding, which is huge on a device like this. That's a, that's a big deal. And something else that Martin included that I think is genius is Steam Link is available for install now on uh, 1804 running Ubuntu Mate. That's great. <laughs> I mean, it kind of makes me want to hook one up to my TV with, with, with VLC having hardware decoding and FFmpeg having hardware decoding and Steam Link. Um, I don't know. That actually starts to turn into a pretty competitive media system too. Yeah, the only issue though is that there's no acceleration in the browser yet. That's something he's been working on. But yeah, unfortunately it's not there. So browsing is a bit of a painful experience. But if you're only looking to do the media stuff with it, then it's um, pretty solid. Well, speaking of media stuff, the Ubuntu Studio flavor also was recognized again officially as a flavor. And two of the developers that applied for their upload rights to Ubuntu Studio's core packages received permission to do so. So business continues as usual. Yeah, there was some doubt about that because the team had changed and it just looked like it may lose its official status. But good to see they've managed to sort that out and it's going to continue. Well, speaking of business as usual, Red Hat continues to make money. It looks like they are finally crossing that $3 billion revenue line. In fact, if you do the math, it is looking like it might be $3.4 billion. Yeah, suddenly the IBM acquisition makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? I mean, as I said at the time, they didn't buy them for a laugh. They bought them because they're a money-making machine. Yep, I completely agree. And uh, who says that open source can't make any money? This is really something. And, and Jim Whitehurst, the CEO, attributes uh, enterprise organizations as a continued source of growth as they convert their environments to hybrid cloud environments, uh, IBM's favorite buzz term. And he also said their subscription service is up. It continues to grow. OpenStack and OpenShift continues to be an area of growth for them, even though the buzz is kind of those things are on their way out. And they're investing more into Kubernetes, as everyone says. But the final bit of information here, Joe, is that the deal with IBM is due to close in the second half of this year. So that means any time, I guess, between June and December 31st, <laughs> like it could, yeah. could be anywhere in there. Yeah, that's nice and vague. Um, I wonder if it'll be before Thanksgiving or not. We should bet. I, I'll bet before. Do you want to take after or do you want to take before? Because I'm going to bet before Thanksgiving. I will bet after. I think it'll be right at the end of the year. <sighs> now I feel bad. Now I want the other bet. All right. Uh, let's see. What should we <laughs> bet? We've got to bet something. Hmm. I know what we can do. Um, whoever loses has to go first with the Bitcoin predictions. <laughs> okay. All right. Fair enough. Okay. All right. That seems fair. Okay, well, uh, let's talk about the big news out of LVFS. We love talking about the Linux vendor firmware service. think it's great for new users and f potentially for servers in the future, but they have a big announcement this week. Yeah, they've joined the Linux Foundation, so yet another project that's done that. The way that the folks involved in the project that are talking about it, it sort of sounds like this is a way to vendor neutralize this fairly important service that could potentially in the future expand into updating the server space and become even more critical that it's vendor neutral. Uh, I think the concern was that by some, it was seen as a Red Hat project. Um, and 
I wouldn't also discount the long-term Dell involvement with, since the very beginning of this project, um, even till now, Richard considers uh, one of the Dell engineers that's been involved, Mario, uh, a uh, like a co a co creator of the project. He's been so involved, and they have a close relationship with the Linux Foundation. Well, there were two things that stood out about this to me. One is that the firmware files are distributed as CAB files, which is just funny. But the other thing is that they have now reached five hundred thousand downloads per month from the LVFS project, which is a lot of machines. Yeah, that's in the last month. That's in the last month. And the other way to say that is 500,000 modern Linux desktops with machines that have updatable firmwares connected and updated. That's a decent chunk of people um, because not everybody's running the absolute latest stuff or using GNOME software very much. And not everybody has a machine that can be updated by LVFS yet. Uh, so I'm I'm impressed with that number, especially for the last 30 days. That's it. Seems like Richard was talking about this. It seems like whenever the project gets some news coverage, the downloads go up, and uh, there's been a lot of news coverage around joining the Linux Foundation. Yeah, I suppose people start checking their software center and go, "Oh, actually, yeah, I can update my various firmwares here." Yep, it's still open source. Richard's still at the helm. It's still a Python Flask project. You can still go get involved. It's just they're trying to make it vendor neutral now, and. My reading of that is it's a positioning for a long-term play. I think you need to have a service like this to gain wide industry adoption and to be taken seriously. And so joining the Linux Foundation kind of gives it that extra credibility as well. I don't know, Joe. Needs more blockchain, in my opinion. Joking, of course. I love LVFS. Uh, But speaking of in it for the long term, uh, Handshake has been making a lot of donations to open source projects And it appears kind of recently, rather quietly, they made a pretty significant contribution to Debian. Yeah, $300,000, which is an awful lot of money given that Debian usually gets an order of magnitude less than that donated to it every year. Yeah, and the project says, and I think this is very true, I'm very happy to see this. They say it's going to help them continue to replace old failing hardware. They have a whole migration plan that the Debian system administrators have written up. Um, which includes reloading and renewing servers, replacing components, um, just making the workflow a little easier for their developers, which we've talked about recently on some of our shows. Uh, That all sounds like very, very positive long-term improvements to the project. And because they've been contributing to all these different projects over the last year or so, you hear about Handshake a lot, but you might not remember what it is. Just a quick recap. It's a decentralized permissionless naming protocol that is, guess what, compatible with DNS. And the idea is taking away root DNS servers that are centrally controlled and moving it to a peer-to-peer system that is, as you also guessed, powered by blockchain. However, it does seem to be a very cool project, and I do like the idea of decentralized root DNS servers that is still completely compatible with the DNS protocol. That seems pretty clever to me. Now, it wasn't clear to me whether these donations to the various free software projects had been in actual cash or whether it had just been in cryptocurrencies. But doing a little bit of digging, it seems that it is cash. They will be getting some cryptocurrency as well, but this 300,000 is actual cash by the looks of things. Oh, huh. Yeah, we had tried to get that answered in the past by various projects that have been involved with contributions, and they were a little reluctant to answer that before. So it's a combo thing. By the looks of things, I mean, it's not, completely clear, but from digging around and watching various YouTube videos and reading various articles, that's the conclusion I've come to. 
but it would be good to get some clarification from the various projects. That's true. They say USD, but they could just be saying in the value of. Uh, Handshake writes that they've gifted nearly $10.2 million to various floss projects, and they say it's $10.2 million in USD. They're not saying crypto, um, although I think famously a lot of their a lot of their initial funding did come from various crypto sources. So I, I think that's where some of the speculation comes from. Yeah. It's funny that this money is essentially investment that they needed to enable them to have a, a valuation that was true, but they didn't actually need that investment. So they've decided to sort of re-gift it at $10 million. It's a lot of money. And I suppose who's to complain? All these free software projects are benefiting from it, but it just seems all a bit strange, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. But they really picked some good projects. You can search uh, the tags on our site, the, just search the site for a handshake, and there's lots of great projects they've been contributing to now. So, like, they keep picking good ones, and Debian absolutely could put that money to good use. So it's, I mean, and it's, that's nothing to sneeze at, 300,000 U.S. greenbacks. So at this point, um, I don't know if a, a blockchain-based DNS, a decentralized thing is ever going to take off, but hats off to Handshake for their awesome contributions to the community. Yeah, definitely. Well, before we get out of here, a quick mention for the UK Open Source Awards 2019. And this is happening on the 12th of June in Edinburgh. And it's not just the awards. It's kind of a, an afternoon into evening event where there'll be some speakers and it's kind of a conference as well. Right, and you can still nominate. Uh, they say categories are five and it's companies or individuals, which in the last year have shown exceptional innovation in free and open source software. And they have different categories for like public, company, individual, etc. Link, as always, in the show notes in, or in your podcast player of choice. I'd like to go up there for this, but I'm not sure about scheduling yet. So um, fingers crossed on that one. Hmm. It probably depends if they're going to have an open bar or not. <laughs> <laughs> Very good point. Well, we're back every single week. Go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the various ways to get new episodes. And go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch. And if you're a Ruby on Rails developer, Linux Academy is hiring right now. Go to linuxacademy.com slash careers. They'd like to talk to you. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next week. See you later. Bye.